jobs come up, and I thought about you. Not a job, really, more of an interesting errand. You spook easily, Starling. See, the one we want most refuses to cooperate. I want you to go after him again today in the asylum. And who's the subject? The psychiatrist, Hannibal Lecter. Hannibal the cannibal. Jack Crawford sent a trainee to me. Yes, I'm a student. I'm here to learn from you. Maybe you can decide for yourself whether or not I'm qualified enough to do that. Quid pro quo. I tell you things, you tell me things. Not about this case, though. About yourself. Quid pro quo. Yes or no? Yes or no, Clarice? Poor little Catherine is waiting. Go, Doctor. What is your worst memory of childhood? Death of my father. Tell me about it and don't lie right now. The census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. So tell me about Miss West Virginia. Was she a large girl? Yes. Big through the hips? Romy? The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Mr. My family will pay cash. Whatever ransom you're asking for, they'll pay it. It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. As part of our throwback series, today we'll be looking at The Silence of the Lambs. Starring Jodie Foster, Anthony Hopkins, Scott Glenn and Ted Levine. Directed by Jonathan Demme. Well, I've read the case files, have you? Everything you need to find him is right there in those pages. And tell me how. First principles, Clarice. Simplicity. What is its nature? What does he do, this man you seek? He kills women. He covets. That is his nature. And how do we begin to covet, Clarice? We seek out things to cover it. Make an effort to answer now. No. Well, Clarice, have the lamb stopped screaming? Doctor Lecter. Don't bother with the trace. I won't be on long enough. Where are you, Doctor Lecter? I have no plans to call on you, Clarice. The world's more interesting with you in it. So you take care now to extend me the same courtesy. You know I can't make that promise. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. Would you fuck me? I'd fuck me. It's Gally in Glasgow. <laughs> and sitting in a bathtub full of cold fava beans in London, it's Devlin. We're on to yet another of our uh, throwback series. Looking back at the films that we loved as uh, in our younger days and, and films that we find very formative. And your pick this week, and you chose for us Silence of the Lambs. The Silence of the Lambs, Devlin. Is it the definitive? 
Is it? All right. I'm, I stand corrected. And uh, of course, you know, it's, it's much less a sequel than Hannibal. If you wouldn't mind telling us, Kelly, how did you first come to watch Silence of the Lambs? The Silence of the Lambs. Well, I hate to promote Sky every time, but this one was definitely a saw it on Sky as a, as a youngster, just like every film that we kind of gone through that we really shouldn't have been watching. Uh, saw this one really young. Uh, I think I remember watching this when my sister was watching it and I kind of just sort of snuck in and I I was just immediately drawn to it. Um, scared the pants off me as a kid, uh, really did. And then when we uh, went to university, this was like one of the picks that I found in Leeds Market for 50p. So this one has stuck with me in the VHS collection for some time. What about you? I did not watch this film until definitely within the last six or seven years. Um, and I only, wow. uh, until I watched it for, for this episode, I'd only ever seen it once. That's pretty incredible. Uh, but the poster is is really iconic, isn't it? And it really draws you in. It is one of those, what is this yeah. posters? Uh, I think it's fantastic. Uh, every every uh, student union freshers week is selling this poster in the little poster yeah. rack. I think. Yeah, it's a, it's a very cool piece of graphic design, and uh, like a lot of the elements of this film, much copied, much imitated by uh, other later lesser entries into the genre. What genre are we calling this, by the way? Let's just get oh, that out oh. of the way. <laughs> oh. That's a difficult question because I think this is categorized as, and we're dealing with the first Academy Award winning film that we've actually reviewed. It's the age old debate about this one. Is it a horror? Is it a psychological thriller? Is it unter de action? <laughs> uh, I, I kid on that last one. For me, it's a psychological thriller mm -hmm. with horror elements. What about you? What do you think? Horror, thriller? Well, what do you think? Um, the the schools of thought on this are that people who like horror films and who like the horror genre, obviously genres are just, in some cases, they are intentional. In some cases, filmmakers will go out to make a film within this genre because this genre is profitable. You know, we always get this idea of the elevator pitch or, or the way, you know, if, if you want to go and get funding, if you're making a studio product, especially, they're going to want you to classify it for them because more often than not, executives need to know what they're making in order to be either on board or not on board. Uh, horror mm -hmm. as a genre tends to get short shrift even to this day, really. I think a lot of times when a horror film has any kind of um, anything more to say than just slashing away at teenagers there's a tendency for people to sort of pull it out of the lane of horror and try and claim it for something a little bit better but what that ends up doing is of course it's uh i think it's sort of self-perpetuating so if if horror films anytime they show any kind of intellect or or any sort of ambition if they get pulled out of being horror films and they're not horror films anymore then what you are left with is 
this sort of little ghetto of of sort of trash. I don't know who you've been. Oh, about. I spend too much time on uh, mm. on obnoxious film blogs. <laughs> I think people think themselves in circles here. I think you need to get out a bit more. Otherwise, we might have a Buffalo Bill situation going on. Anyway, oh Devlin, uh, I want to give you a little bit of history uh, on the film. Uh, but firstly, would you like the plot? I would uh, love one of our patented plot summaries, please. When FBI trainee Clarice Starlin is asked by a superior, Jack Crawford, to visit the notorious serial killer, Dr. Hannibal the Cannibal Lecter, she unwittingly steps into the dark recesses of the human psyche. The insane former psychiatrist may have the insight to help the FBI catch the monstrous Buffalo Bill, who is kidnapping and killing women in order to construct his very own woman suit. Clarice must engage in a quid pro quo with Dr. Lecter in order to obtain the clues which will help her solve the case and provide her with the chance to silence the lambs. After Buffalo Bill kidnaps a senator's daughter, they are in a race against time to catch the confused serial killer before it's too late. Lecter, still withholding information, makes a deal with the senator, ensuring he can move to a different facility far, far away from his nemesis, Dr. Chilton. As Lecter is held in his makeshift cell, he escapes, but not before giving Clarice the final clue to the killer's whereabouts. Using Lecter's clues, Clarice inadvertently enters the monster's lair, and in a final confrontation, Clarice guns down Buffalo Bill and rescues the senator's daughter. Clarice graduates and becomes a qualified member of the FBI, but not before receiving a phone call during the celebrations. Lecter wishes her all the best before having an old friend for dinner. That was excellent. I especially like the bit where you almost said the title of the film. <laughs> almost. Were you about to just applaud and stand up? Yep. Well, it sounded very much like uh, like while you were saying that, that if there were a camera in front of you, you would have looked directly at it, which is, of course, um, yeah, well, ironic while talking about this film. That's the beauty of doing it audio. You, you couldn't see what I was doing when I was getting all my tongue twisted. <laughs> Uh, slightly too much Chianti pre-recording. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Well, um, yeah, for those that can't see me, I do have a glass of Chianti uh, to the side of me, and maybe I've already uh, indulged myself too much. I need some fava beans, Devlin. Indeed, indeed. It's the only things that, that go with it. I require starch. So I'm going to give you a little bit of history on um, so a, bit, a bit of trivia about the film, and it will hopefully pique your interest. Okay. The film was based on a best-selling mm. novel by author. Do we Thomas know when Harris. these books came out originally? That interesting. Yeah, they. they uh, so the Science of the Lambs came out in the eighties. Uh, yeah, okay. the eighties. Uh, but this was the second book. Uh, the original book was uh, Red Dragon which would later on be made into Red Dragon with Ed Norton and Philip Seymour Hoffman and Sir Anthony Hopkins. Um, but they changed the name of that title, uh, and it was a Michael Mann film called yes. Manhunter, which uh, had Tom Noonan as the, as the serial killer. And what was it really interesting about going back, and I watched Manhunter last week, and uh, I hadn't seen it in years, and I remember it being better than it was. And I think I... I think I yes. texted you, didn't I, and just said, it's it's really dull. It's mm. very artistic. The uh, the framing... There's a, there's a lot of Michael Mann lighting from what I remember. Lots of billowing curtains and like very like yeah. 
yeah. almost almost neon blue moonlight. Anyone who's, who's followed Michael Mann's work, um, it's all there. Uh, you can see uh, where his aesthetic has come from, and it's kind of evolved, and he's he's come back to it. You know, films like Heat use the same kind of lighting setup, same same color palettes, and um, and one of the things that really uh, really struck me was that I I was a bit bored. And I think it was because it's essentially the same story. The framework mm. for the story is the same. Long story short, Gene Hatman uh, originally buys the rights to the book and develops a script where he was originally going to direct and star. And they don't really know who he was going to play, yeah. but I think it would have been Crawford. And then after Mississippi Burning, which uh, I watched a couple of weeks ago for the mm. first time and thought it was fantastic. Hatman didn't want to be associated associated with anything controversial, so he left the project, and he thought that the film was too too violent. So he left, and that's when they got Jonathan Demme on board, and we'll talk about Jonathan Demme um, a little bit yeah. later on when we get into the actual film. Here's some of the alternatives for Hannibal Lecter. Robert De Niro, yeah, it goes without saying. I think he was probably, a, you know, at some point attached to every film ever during yes. that period. Dustin Hoffman would have been a bit weird, but okay, maybe not as physically imposing. Not saying anything. Uh, Robert Duvall. Okay, and this is my favourite one. Godspeed, Godspeed, Sean Connery. Oh, that would have been terrible. Uh, and then the other one, which I think I could see, hap- I could see, and it would be a very different performance, and it would maybe be the thing that I'll ding the uh, the later iterations like Hannibal and Red Dragon is yep. Jeremy Jeremy Irons which I can ah, see Jeremy's Iron indeed indeed you know we're, the Euro villain continues from Die Hard yeah. so yes they they were the uh, they were the options so interesting okay. and then yeah. so instead of Jodie Foster Michelle Pfeiffer was the original choice which would have been a very again a very different film the other one, um, I'm going I'm to signpost that I'm nicking this joke from from a far better film critic than me, which will be Mark Commode. Uh, Meg Ryan, which is would be terrible. <laughs> uh, if I don't believe her as a pilot, I'm not going to believe her as a intelligent FBI trainee who's got a double award in criminology and psychology. No chance. Well, Sorry, Meg. Yeah. I, I mean, I could I could probably see why she would want to go for it in terms of you want to be able to broaden your appeal. You want to show your range, you know, if, oh, if no, no, she's... No, 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 Devlin, you are, you are wrong. She turned it down. Well, I take it, it all back. That it was... <laughs> so I guess she, she sat on that one for like a decade until she did uh, In the Cut with Jane Campion then. That was that was when she when she did her you know bad girl turn. Those are some very very interesting uh, iterations. I think if you could they if are. you could like cut those out as little slips of paper and like grab them at random out of a hat and match them up and then try and imagine, for example, what a Sean Connery Meg Ryan version of this joint would be. <laughs> <laughs> the way it plays out in your head is a, is a very entertaining. Mm. Mm. Ooh, Clarice. Ooh. You look ravishing, dog. <laughs> you look like a uh, rube. Yeah. 
It's all in my head. <laughs> Good speed. God speed. God spell. Yeah, no, that sounds hideous. But fascinating, like a car crash. Should we get into the story? Should we just do it? Let's get into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's, let's should we bang straight into... Um, I noticed uh, when we were getting ready to put this episode together, uh, a friend of ours, Matt, gave us a couple of talking points he wanted to hear about. And one of them was the, the amazing font used in the credit sequence it's very twin peaks it's cool isn't it it's really good it's really good it's really like a lot of things in this film in your face yeah very claustrophobic like just clutters the whole screen up with the bold kind of black font with the white outlines it's i would have been delighted if i was scott glenn like scott glenn in your face but yeah, I would like fantastic. to think that he's uh, he's taken a, a, a screenshot of that, blown it up, <laughs> had it printed. You know, like on on Amazon, you can get stuff printed on a box on a, a box canvas. Yes, he's just got that that still image over those uh, over those trees. Took took it up the hill that he was uh, he was on during vertical limit, and just sits there and just goes Scott Glenn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. um, yeah, great opening sequence. Um, uh, beautiful score from the start. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? It really is. Just um, so sad. Like, uh, I kept, you know, probably in, in D minor, the saddest of all the keys. I have no idea <laughs> if that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the, um, it's the, it's Howard Shaw, composer mm. of the wonderful, wonderful music from Lord of the Rings. Yes. He's here doing Silence of the, the Silence, my bad. The Science of the Lambs. It's uh, yeah, you're right. It's a wonderful score. It's a lovely opening. And what I love about the um, the sort of the opening shots is that it's visual storytelling at its best. Yeah, we see the jumper. It says trainee. We see her alone. She's running through the woods, mm-hmm. and that's going to be echoed later yeah. on in her, in her sort of um, the woods. The woods are huge. She's so tiny. She's running uphill immediately, and then every time you see people running, she's running in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. fighting mm-hmm. against it's, the grain it's great and and even though i'm going to be uh in the in the camp for psychological thriller not horror you know there, there are little horror elements you know the fog and and like you said the trees and it's oh that um, wonderful stuff that uh bird screech as well you know like the generic bird screech sound effect that they use on all on any time you need a bird screeching um use yeah. the same one uh, they well, they use it three times. But what I really like about Clarice straight away is the the chap says um, Crawford wants to see you, and she's so not interested in the fact that she's like really sweaty. I wouldn't go and see my boss, for example, when I've just come back from mm. a run. I would, you know, I'd go and wash my face and get the sweat off. Well, that she's, um, yeah, from from the off, you get driven focused but what we what we do get is immediately one of the uh, you said before about motifs and there are themes running through this film themes of transformation themes of change um but there's also this as i mentioned before uh a woman operating in in a sort of man's world and that that's constantly through the film but what i really like about Clarice and her character is that she see her reaction mm. responses yeah. and her behavior change depending on where she is and who she's with. 
and I really like that. Oh, I think I think uh, definitely the, the there's always eyes on her. Be it, I, I think there's um when when people talk about the um the history of cinema yeah. being littered with the male gaze. I think Jonathan Demi is a director who totally understands this, this idea that the default setting for cameras, where the way they frame their characters, the way they frame people, the way they, from, from kind of the ground up, but just something as simple as where do you place your camera in relation to these people? I'm not, I don't want to say lesser directors because I, I, I think there are, there are amazing craftsmen who still, mm-hmm succumb to to the male gaze whether they do it um knowingly or unknowingly cameras frame women differently than they frame men and i think jonathan demi in this is putting us in the position of uh clarice at times Uh, it's putting us in the position of the voyeur at times i think he knows where we are and i think that's uh that's a rare and and pretty incredible skill to be able to locate your audience psychologically without making it too super obvious to them but making it obvious enough that that it does kind of it does seep in i mean it's impossible not to notice it it, exactly it's impossible not to notice yeah you could watch this whole film police procedural cat and mouse will they get the killer but you can't not notice what's also being uh what's also being sort of told to you visually and her struggles within this sort of patriarchal mm. system. I think it's wonderful. It really yeah. is. It's really good stuff. If I may take a moment to uh, just mention, in terms of the story structure, because we're now getting into just kind of that first part, we're into the, we're only about five minutes into the film. It was literally, the credits are still rolling over this. Yes. Um, and yet, yes. the screenplay on this thing is so economical that outside of something like, the first Star Wars film, when we, you know the uh, the Joseph Campbell, the the monomyth, the 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 twelve stage mm-hmm. story, yeah. the kind of the um the hero with a thousand faces idea that that all stories are the same story. Um, you can, yeah. I mean it, it's it's a it's a crutch, but also it's a legitimate storytelling aid, and it's it's the way we as people relate stories to each other. There's there's no point just kind of rambling on. If you're trying to make a piece of popular uh, culture, art, whatever, if you want it to reach a lot of people, it makes sense for it to be in a way that's relatable to them. And as much as um, the the filmmaking here is is exceptional, um, the the script follows that monomyth so well, and in such a way that sometimes this this sounds like a like a criticism when you say that. It's a, uh, a, it's it's almost like people think that you're saying that something is generic or um, like it's a, it's a copycat, you know that it's that you're just churning something out to a formula. It's formulaic. I don't think that's the case in this. I think it's just not when it's done. Not when it's done well. Yeah, this is you know it elevates something to the to the level of kind of modern myth making. So. Breaking down that monomyth, you know, the, there's you've got the the first section is always the ordinary world, and what could be more kind of ordinary and drab than having to repetitively run around in a grey, damp, foggy forest in a grey, drab, 
jumpsuit and then you get literally called to adventure he's uh, jack's called for you and she goes and she goes and she enters the uh, the elevator and you've got the big warning sign of this wall of giant men dressed in red around her, all of whom disappear by the time she exits the elevator as well. So yes. they're, they're only when she gets in. Um, uh, and there we are, like straight away, she is now, she's called to adventure and she meets the the mentor figure. Yep. This is within, within less than six minutes. And what I really, um, and I'm glad you pointed it out about the, the normality of these opening scenes compared to where we're about to go to. She's in these offices that are kind of these big cement kind of offices, no windows. It's it's one of many kind of dungeon type mm. locations. Um, really, really uncinematic. Yes, I uh, I noted that like the the light in here reminded me of stuff like um, those old seventies paranoid thrillers, something like All the President's mm-hmm. Men or the old Alan Pacula kind of stuff. Like absolutely, and there's no way. Um, you're going to get away with filming in this kind of locale unless you've got some skill behind the camera that's going to be able to keep you uh, keep you engaged mm. visually. And they really do it. And they do it by steady cam. These kind of, they're not necessarily even long shots. They're just like steady cam. And we, you talked about the male gaze, one of the big themes, coveting, coveting what you see. Mm. The camera evokes that very theme by doing it with everything we see clarice's pov even when it's not even her pov it's just we're sort of following her in this story and these opening scenes before she gets to corpus office are they're just they're just drawing you in and i was um you know coming back to it now and, and properly going through it and trying to analyze what it is that i like dislike about this film i was really drawn to the uh the filmmaking and the uh, yeah, the camera work is just wonderful, wonderful stuff. A good opportunity now to talk about the yeah. uh, the two actors in question. So we'll start with Scott Glenn. What do you think? He's a an integral part of the film that doesn't get a lot of time. And when you have these roles that are really important, you need actors that can pull you in and tell you a lot about a character without there's no extraneous details they they don't they don't even go for anything cheap like they don't i don't believe they put like a photo of his family on his desk or whatever there's nothing there's nothing cheap it's just that everything's so lived in including the actors performances that and also i mean how hard must it be Mm -hmm. to play these roles out looking down the lens of a camera i was thinking the same thing i was thinking about when when we've made films and when we've been on set, yeah, and that must be so difficult. And we'll we'll discuss Jodie Foster in a second, but I think all these actors deserve just great props for just be, even being willing to just bear all on the extreme close up because it's it's got to be one of the most frightening yeah. things an actor can ever face. I I don't when the camera is that close. There is nowhere to hide when you're delivering any kind of lines, any twitch, any kind of the nuance that it takes in order to hold a performance. Yeah, it's credit goes to them straight away just for even being able to deliver their lines without sort of looking to the left yeah, or so, the right. Yeah, so, so Scott Glenn, I, I think um, 
he plays the ambiguities very, very, very well. Yeah, he is has slicked. He's yeah in mm. charge of behavioral science, and we'll see that later on in the film. You know, he uses yeah. that. Well, he's using it right now. He's manipulating Clarice straight away, mm. and uh, there's manipulation going on throughout the film. And he is no different in some respects to Lecter. Uh, however, yeah. unlike Lecter, and I, I need you to check mark me on this. He lies to Clarice. I actually don't think he withholds. Lecter yeah. ever lies to I her. I think he does. He withholds the truth, but I don't think he ever. Yeah, he doesn't lie to her. See, it's 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 a good one. It's um, it's it's mysterious. It's uh, he's a little bit kind of leery. You know, we were talking about the male gaze. The bit right at the end when he they hold on the handshake, it's not like a sexual tension, as in will they, won't they? It's it's a, it's a weird. It's a weird beat. Yeah, there's a little there's a little charge to it, and it's it's sprinkled throughout the film. And and again, when I when I say like he plays the ambiguities of it, he never mm-hmm. crosses over. He's not he's not like Doctor Chilton. He's not a lech. But yeah, it's um. But he does, you know, he he does use. He does manipulate. But because he's on the side of law and order, it's it's maybe it's supposed to be that it's all for the best. He's with what he has, he, he he leaves a mark on it. So, Jody, what do we think of him? Outside of a few key performances, I don't know. It's it's a uh, she's been around for a, for a long time, and she's been a very prominent actor for a very long time. But you have you have a couple of of you have uh, the Bugsy Malone Taxi Driver era. Obviously, those two are quite different films, but Barry. that's that, that's when. Uh, but in in both, she's showing a level of self possession and um, a kind of eer- an eerie level of of talent for somebody so young. Uh, then you have this. I've not seen other very acclaimed roles of hers. Uh, I've not seen The Accused, uh, for example. I, I have, is, yeah, I've seen the accused. Uh, it sounds honestly pretty harrowing, and I, I'm not sure I'd ever want to watch it. Yeah, it's a tough watch. It's, um, yeah, it's one of those tough watches. Yeah. It's, it's not something you're ever really in the mood for. Yeah, it's not it's, something you're going to put on uh, Friday on Netflix. Yeah, it? so, um, so I've, I've not seen that, which is a shame. Uh, um, uh, Panic she's... Room. I think, I think she's great in Panic Room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's she's got a, she's she's had an odd career. I'm with you. I'm sort of ambivalent about uh, Jodie Foster. Like you said, a few key roles. This one in particular. Um, yeah, I, I've always found that her kind of she brings a certain level of snootiness. Yes, I, I, I can't I can't find the right word that's going to best describe how I feel. But when I see her in certain films, I do feel. Like she's sort of not smelling her own farts a little bit, and uh, <laughs> to, to to the detriment of the film. And you know what it is? Mm-hmm. It was I think it was like the first season of South Park, which I had on VHS. Right. And uh, Mr. Garrison is getting goes to Tom's rhinoplasty right. for uh, <laughs> for plastic surgery, and they just keep dropping this line, this joke uh, about. Did you see the film Contact? <laughs> as soon as they say that, people just throw up. Yeah. And that's kind of, unfortunately, uh, for better or worse, that's kind of how I feel about Jodie. I think I've been slightly um, I've been slightly manipulated by 
the wonderful Trey Parker got you. Wonderful work of South Park. I agree with you. Panic Room. She's she's really good. I really like her in Inside Man. Mm. Um, Which well, she, she does bring a, um, a an authority. That's what she's. She what does. She, she does. But this is the film. This is the one. She won an Academy Award for um, The Accused. Uh, she very much deserved. I'm mean, not saying she didn't deserve it, but she very much deservedly wins the Academy Award for this performance. Yeah. In my opinion, I think she's, I think she's wonderful. She's perfect for the part. I mean, God, God help us if it was Meg Ryan. I just don't see how she would be able to, to, to take us through this story and and give us the emotional kind of gravitas that we need because we're we're dealing with like hefty, hefty yeah. stuff. Um, so we need an actress. She can, an actress and also she navigates. A very tricky series of not obstacles because you don't want to describe um a well-rounded character as an obstacle to storytelling it's obviously a massive boon to storytelling if you do it right but she's she's trying to embody um uh a certain amount of innocence she has to be young she has to be vulnerable she also has mm-hmm. to be extremely determined she has to be very resourceful there's uh there's a sense that nothing really phases her when we're talking about like the joseph campbell story what comes after the uh um the call to adventure is usually refusing the call this idea wow i mean i can't do this you know the the hero turns down the quest because they don't feel that they are uh, worthy or strong enough to do so uh it's fascinating that at no point does she ever refuse the call nor does she ever really no. doubt that she can do it. We see setbacks. She's not set up as being uh, uh, perfect, which is what makes her an interesting character. But it's it's um, there's a moment when when she's when she's talking to uh, Jack Crawford. He is locked in. He is looking directly at her down the camera, and her eye line is glancing at him, away from him. She's looking left of camera, right of camera, down, and she's. Uh, she's she's twitching and she's kind of grabbing at her clothing and she feels uncomfortable. And as soon as he says Hannibal Lecter's name, you see this entire change. And she yeah, she locks on. Yeah, she just yeah. looks straight back at him. And yeah, it's a great performance. I agree. We'll get into it then. She gets mm. the mission. Great transition, right? Great transition. Isn't Don't it? ever forget what he is. We're introduced to arguably the biggest monster in the film. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Chilton, complete scumbag, but by crikey, <laughs> is it a wonderful character? <laughs> he is, he is, oh, yeah. he's, he's so slimy. He's such a scumbag. I just can't wait to see him die. And I, unfortunately, we never get to see that. Spoilers. I noticed that uh, throughout, when we're talking about economy of, economy of screenplay and economy of directing seem to go hand in hand with this. And I was, um, I don't know, I, I assume Jonathan Demi isn't really, known as a writer director it seems that he's more of a director who works with writers i know he started out as a writer with um with uh with corman and he wrote um caged heat which i just finished watching today which is a weird one (laughs) yeah we never talked about jonathan demi and uh, Mm. so we may as well do it now a really interesting choice because this source material in no way would be the thing that you would read and go i know who will get to 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 helm this project hmm. uh, jonathan demi the talking heads guy <laughs> yeah 
he made married to the mob he, he yeah. was he was very much renowned for was it? screwball yeah he was, he was coming off um uh swing shift the uh Kurt russell film and in my opinion jonathan demi doing this type of source material is the exact reason why those kind of directors or storytellers that have got a sensibility for comedy it's really really malleable to then put into something like mm. horrific again i didn't say horror because i think this is a psychological thriller but something horrific and he is able to to find that balance because horror and comedy have always had a really mm. close relationship you know even the greatest horror films you know even something like texas oh, chainsaw yeah. massacre once you've watched it once or twice and the the horrific nature of it and the oppressive tone and mood kind of washes over you and you become desensitized to it it kind of falls into almost slapstick comedy at times and uh, and i think the best horrors do that and sam raimi's evil dead is is the obvious one that i'm going to point towards but it's just that sensibility to know how to frighten and scare and 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 jolt the audience and then undercut it with something humorous witty doesn't necessarily mm. need to be like a fart joke it's just it's just the idea that they know how to yeah. play with our emotions i guess that that's it right because um both horror and comedy at their at their core they're trying to elicit a visceral response out of you if you don't laugh at a comedy then it's exactly. terrible getting a laugh out of somebody is is timing you have to it's all timing yeah uh, you stretch the moment. Same stretch the moment to the point where you think it's going to break, and then you break that tension. Yeah, you got. You either break that tension with uh, with something mm-hmm. that's that's going to elicit a negative or a positive response out of you. So yeah, I I, I can totally see why why they would be transferable when we're talking about like the the craft that he and the writer have brought to it. I don't feel like there's a wasted scene transition. Having gone through this, watch this now twice in the last week, I can't pick a scene that I would pull. There are scenes that I would change, or there are things yeah. that I would maybe change. But then when I change them, I'm fundamentally changing the structure of the story, and I would then have to make it longer, or I then have to labor the point somewhere else. So when you remove one part, one element from the film, um, everything else sort of falls down. So it's uh, it's one of those like really tightly yeah. constructed films that just, uh, I guess it's lightning in a bottle. It's difficult. Every, everything's everything's working towards this end goal and they deliver uh, on most counts, which is uh, all you can ask for, for for most films, let alone films that, uh, yeah, that hold up over time. Yeah, exactly. When I mentioned earlier about how Clarice deals with the male gaze in different situations, depending on, where she is and who she's um who she's having to mm. sort of counteract against when chilton propositions her in the worst way ever and it's not a chat up line i'm ever gonna use you know, <laughs> glasgow could be a really fun town which is weird because you did say that to me the first time i came to visit and i was like gally i've been coming here since i was a kid my dad's from here and you and you didn't care you just sat behind your desk it's weird that you had a desk in your house as well <laughs> i was yeah twiddling my pen uh so yes um yeah but the way that clarice deals with it is uh she Mm. sort of almost laughs it off 
and then goes into professional yeah. mode and he does not like her response when she's yeah. like, No, I need to be back this afternoon and um he doesn't she doesn't even entertain the idea. She, you know, she does it later on when yep. when he's he's clearly peeved at her. But at this point she's she goes straight into ah, there's no nonsense here. Uh, and I'm not interested yeah. whatsoever. And I love that about her. And immediately I'm mm. like, and, um, I am team Clarice. Great camera great. placement again. We're establishing the rules of when these close-ups and when these uh, looking directly down the lens uh, uh, shots happen. And when we were introduced to Jack Crawford, we have him sitting back from the camera and then leaning into us. We're intrigued by him. When you see Chilton, he's straight in. He's straight in our face. He's crowding us. Yeah. She, however, is in a uh, mid close up, standing behind a chair. I believe she's very guarded, mm-hmm. and yeah. and eventually yeah. she gets a she does get a close up because otherwise the the framing would look mental. <laughs> but she is um, she is once again looking off camera. She's not looking directly down it, whereas he is leering right at us. But as soon as she rebuffs his advances. We cut out to a big wide shot and he is off. He is basically running downstairs and waiting for her to scurry along behind him. We go from this quite realistic world of the FBI officers into what would never be an asylum, but a dungeon. And it's, you know, it's fantastic. It's the descent into, and I mentioned it in the, in the plot summary, you know, the descent into the dark side of the human psyche, into hell. As Joseph Campbell would put it, crossing the threshold. Where the monsters live. It's, it's wonderful stuff. And he, the, the sound, I'm going to point out the sound yeah. design here as well, because there's like warning signs going off everywhere. There's a siren that's like buzzing away. Um, the lighting, yeah. you know, it's not subtle, but it's what it's it's telling us everything we mm. need to know what's cool is that behind them it's uh it's it's that kind of it's cracked white tiling behind them and then the bars and the bars are metal but because of the red light these bars are just blood mm-hmm. red just slashing right through the screen it's it's uh these, these things don't happen by accident this is all this is all by yeah. design should we mention the cinematographer very briefly well yeah this is so this is uh tak fujimoto I believe he collaborated with jonathan demi on virtually all of his features almost yes yes uh all the way all the way up through like manchurian candidate but um certainly he shot uh married to the mob and and something wild in those 80s features uh they worked together for the first time on caged heat (laughs) the uh corman cheapy what is odd about that is that that really is a cheapy like that is it's a strange film because it's exploitation trash but i cannot imagine anyone finding it in any way titillating or erotic well i watched married to the mob and mm. the use of the pov and the steady cam it's in married to the mob so this is a technique that they are perfecting and utilizing yeah and they brought it to the source material and what um we'll we'll get into it when we talk about uh sir anthony uh and his performance what is helping me enjoy this film and elevate the performances that we're seeing is that it's being supported by the technical side of the filmmaking. You know, this isn't just actors just delivering. This is actors being given the foundations to deliver. So yeah. the camera work, the lighting, the staging, it's all helping to evoke these wonderful performances. This is what I'm feeling. I'm not telling I'm not saying this is what everyone feels, because I know that some people are a bit down on Jodie Foster's performance and a bit down on 
versus Anthony and a bit down on the film. So I'm just saying from my point of view. But yeah, Tak Fujimoto's work here is mm. is just if you could turn you could turn the sound off and just watch the camera work. You don't need the sound. You can the, the film is being told visually anyway. It's wonderful stuff. Yeah, and and again, it's it's economy. I don't I don't get the impression that this is a film that shot a whole bunch of unnecessary coverage. You don't get that impression that this is, you know, okay, they did an establish and then they did a, you know, mid close and then they punched in and then they punched in. I don't get that impression at all. I really think that they knew exactly where they wanted to locate that camera. For no, we weren't making this film, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, which, which is fantastic. And, um, you know, that Tak Fujimoto, um, uh, his first ever credit as a cinematographer, and he was a co-cinematographer on it, was uh, Badlands, which is oh. unbelievable. Uh, that that was the first piece of work that he ever did. He was just out of uh, film school, which he studied in London, by the way. He's at London Film School. Phenomenal work. And we'll highlight, I guess, some of the other, some of the other lighting schemes throughout because there's, uh, in addition to the camera placement and the camera moves, it's not, it's not too much, but some of his lighting schemes are, are pretty incredible. So we're gonna. I'll ask the question, Sir Anthony. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on his performance, his interpretation of Dr. Hannibal Lecter? Well, coming at this film relatively fresh, um, again, really having only seen it once and seeing it as an adult, and the fact that this performance has survived the sort of strip mining by pop culture um, is a kind of minor miracle. Um, I'm thinking... Everything from your favorite and mine, F. Murray Abraham, in uh, National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon One. Oh, I I need to see that again. I haven't seen it in years. Oh, it's, uh, it's I, just, uh... I just remember Samuel R. Jackson holding the gun and like blowing, <laughs> and that's the bit I always remember. And Tim Curry with the cookies. Uh, <laughs> wilderness girls. Um, there's there's a full <laughs> sequence where F. Murray Abraham just does like a, you know, it's it's a super on the nose, blunt as fuck impression. Um, you've got that. I did Dawn French in that amazing French and Saunders uh, sketch from mm-hmm. years ago. The fact that this this thing has been imitated so much and it is theatrical, but it's theatrical in the in the. It's not theatrical. That's, that's maybe the wrong phrase. Theatrical would suggest that he's playing it to the rafters, whereas what he's doing here is it's um, it's a kind of impressive artifice well he is playing against type from what we've the information that we've been given about this about mm. this guy because we've been we've spent yeah. the last uh, seven or eight minutes just hearing the legend yeah, of it's Hannibal quick his, his introduction is you know first 10 minutes yeah. and then we then we meet him but within those 10 minutes we are given quite a bit of information about this this chap yeah. you know don't let lecture into your head he's a monster all that kind of stuff so you build this picture in your mind of what you're gonna face Anthony hopkins it was his choice to just be stood there center of the room or center of the cell um and unpolitely say good morning because he he felt his instincts told him that that would be far more uh unsettling and frightening to present what would be a normal a normal individual and 
he's not wrong because he's going back to Norman Bates and Psycho. You know, the idea that uh, an individual can be this crazed killer, but on the surface is a fine, upstanding mm. gentleman. The killer next and door. And it's uh, the killer. Well, I don't think I don't think Lecter's that. <laughs> I mean, you, you, yeah. You're not wrong. He's he's treading a fine line because, and that fine line I think is stepped over in the later films like Hannibal and Red Dragon. Right. But in this film, he he treads it just about right, where it could fall into cartoon. Just he just about manages to just tread that that fine line, and it's 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 wonderful stuff. His instincts, his his decisions as an actor are just great. You know. He's in fitted clothes, his hair's groomed. Mm-hmm. You said he's polite. He's not too dissimilar to Hans Gruber in Die Hard yeah. as far as Alan, Alan Rittman's performance where he, he doesn't need to do anything big and, and bold like I'm on the stage. It's all very still. It's all in the eyes and it's all in the inflections. I think his voice mm-hmm. has a real, uh, is one of the real things that i'm drawn to and it's it's kind of charm and it's magnetism as well and mag- that magnetism is difficult to nail down because that's not really something that you can manufacture well i don't want to quote david brent in the office but i am he, yeah he charmed me yeah yeah uh, he got he got the job uh he's <laughs> yeah. one of the things that i really really like about uh lecter in this film yeah is he's wicked and he's dastardly. With that in mind, then, Hannibal Lecter is, and this is throughout the film, he is, if you were to look at the characters, he's worse than Buffalo Bill because Buffalo Bill will is, is after a, is, there's a goal there. He's, he's targeting certain victims. Hannibal Lecter, he will just kill you. So yeah. that, this is why I asked the question. It's because he uh, will later on go on to kill a couple of guards that were seemed pretty nice to him. They weren't. They were. They certainly weren't uh, mean, like Doctor Chilton. They introduced themselves as being very, as as being very even, very cordial, very yeah. yeah, very polite. You have no reason to believe that they're not. The ambulance driver, and I think they also mention just a tourist. Yeah, or a random <laughs> tourist. kills a tourist and takes all his cash. <laughs> just, gets, just gets killed. But yeah, this is what I'm. Don't go to Baltimore, yeah. <laughs> His character becomes this icon and a bit like all the great movie monsters uh, were initially terrified and then we end up identifying with them and, and rooting for them. You know, Freddy, Jason, Mike Myers. There's a um... Leatherface to less, to less extent. You know, there's a, there's a trend there of just like these types of characters, these types of villains which do horrible, horrible things. But fundamentally, as audience members, we just um, we revel in their success. Can I steal a line of dialogue from the end of the film? Massive spoilers. Um, the world is a more interesting place with them in it. Oh, you you could write a thesis on that, Devlin. Very good. I <laughs> <laughs> sicken me. <laughs> no, it's just interesting. And it's one of those things that, um, you know, I, I think about like, I, I'm, I am always drawn. You know what, you know what it is? Whenever you go into an airport and you need to buy a book because all the magazines are crap or that they're, yeah. they're like 10 quid, what's the biggest section? It's the crime section with the serial killers. Mm-hmm. It's the, 
let's read about Tam Bud- Ted Bundy. Let's read about the Yorkshire Ripper. It's just, I yeah. know, it's just fascinating that people are drawn to it. But then I say people, so am I. You know, uh, I only recently, I missed the big craze of uh, making a murderer. I watched it with my girlfriend. I was hooked. I watched like yeah. three episodes a night and they're like an hour each. Um, same with Death on a Staircase. And I don't know, mm-hmm. there's just something that um, I guess I really enjoy. And this is me personally. I just really enjoy psychoanalyzing like folk like that. You know, trying to come up with some justifiable reason why they're so mental. We're all just, you know, we're all just humans, and and humans do the everything wonderful and absolutely abhorrent. And it's it's fascinating to to try and pass out like how much different was you know uh, at what at what point could you have forked off the path that you're going on right now. Could you have ended up there? Is it conceivable? Mm. Oh, well, we'll get into that discussion when we get to Buffalo Bill. <laughs> well. So we, we're introduced to Hannibal, the cannibal lector. Again, even the name, it's like cartoonish. But Hopkins brings this sort of, this one, he fleshes out this character. And he, you could argue, is, is hamming it up a bit. But he's so, his eyes are so locked on. And again, it's been the last time I'm going to talk about it because there's POVs throughout the film and we don't want to keep repeating ourselves. But the close-ups on him as Clarice is sat down and uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to point out the, the power dynamics and the staging. You know, in this opening scene, she sat, he stood, dominating her in this conversation as well. And I love the way that she's sort of trying to naturally navigate her way around this clearly... Mm really super intelligent mega perceptive individual you know he talks about the evian skin <laughs> but at, at which point he's uh, he's encroaching on her personal space like everyone does yes. to her but in the only way he can which is it's it's all he has left is to shove his nose and flare his massive nostrils through that plastic hole. And, like... and these these interplays, and we're not going to go into them in great details, which is why we're doing it now for this first one. The way that the back and forth, the cat and mouse between the two, it's it's the main crux of the film, um, and they're the best scenes in the film. Yeah, I I thought opinion. exactly the same thing when I was watching it. That even though it's not the conclusion of the film, even though it's it's not, you know, the the narrative. If we're going through the um, her hero narrative, she this you know the the beast that she slays and the and the reward that she gets when she gets through to the later stages of the hero's quest, it's it's Bill. Mm-hmm. But it's almost as if that takes yeah that takes a back seat because the bulk of the screen time. And the bulk of your emotional attachment is in the burgeoning, very strange relationship between these two. And, and one of the things I really like about the script, and this is um, this is what we were talking about before about payoff, uh, setup, and payoff, and, and and when you come back and watch the watch the film again, yeah, he's playing games straight away. He mentions when he's talking about his drawings. He mentions uh, Belvedere, the Duomo, the the du- Duomo, yes, the Duomo and the Belvedere. Belvedere is where Buffalo Bill resides. That's where he is. 
it's just great. It's these little, little things that um, going back and watching it again now, and it's almost like the podcast yeah. has focused my mind to these things and picking up because I think I was so passive watching it uh, as a, you know, when I was younger and even when I was at university, that these just things just kind of washed over me. But now when I'm watching it, I'm like, I'm on every single line of dialogue, everything that's being told to me, and I'm picking it up. And yeah. uh, I, I would have loved to have seen this at the cinema. These are not techniques that were seen in a lot of films of this type. There's not really films of this type before this, right? Um, no, not not really, no. And I know we already had Manhunter, but it, it as you said, it's it's a different it's a different kind of film. Maybe I mean you could probably argue that um De Palma's yeah, uh, yeah, done a bunch of the kind of psychological thriller with with horror elements. Yeah, blowout and and those kind of things. But the this 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 film has a huge influence going forward. Um, you know, I don't think with this film you don't get seven. You you don't get copycat, which you don't want anyway. <laughs> you don't get Kiss the Girls and you don't get Long Came a Spider and basically Ashley Judd's entire nineties. <laughs> yeah, you don't get any of Ashley Judd, bless her. Um but also you don't get sort of the fall and you don't get True Detective. Uh, True Detective, yeah. You don't get, um, you know, you don't get the making a murderer. I just don't think you get all those things. Yeah. Uh, even even like something like Dexter, where you're deconstructing yeah. the serial killer themselves. I just don't think you get it without Silence of the, the Silence of the Lambs. So it's um, it's pretty influential. So we have Hannibal. He's sort of testing her. He does the you know the famous. Yeah. insults about the shoes it's like the idea of because they call him like a pure psychopath so that i guess this idea is that and also the fact that you know he never he never blinks and when they say the eyes are the window to the soul and he like he allows his eyes to go so dead and yet so piercing they're like shark eyes here's a question for you in 1991 i would say i don't think and i haven't done a wikipedia but i don't think there's ever been an academy award-winning film where a main character gets cheers thrown in their face, it's quite uh, it's quite mm. a bold move. Yeah, when Migs throws the cum, it uh, is. Those are, well, there's a lot of um, a lot of that stuffs a lot of that stuffs heavy going. The the line that Migs says to her on the way in as well is yeah, we he see bombs, and I know I've used it once, but only once. I'll never use it again <laughs> on this. Episode. We are what we are less than fifteen minutes into your film here. It's pretty hard going. And your lead character. Pace. It's quite It's quite a thing. Yeah. Uh, but what I like about um, the reaction is it's like the first time that we see Lecter's mask. Mm. Well, this is the way I interpreted it. I don't know what you thought. But when he... I, can't, I think it's kind of implied that he wouldn't want her to walk away because of such a rude act that Miggs has committed. But I saw it as more that he knew she'd never come back. You know, she's just been humiliated she's already in a state he knows she's a trainee mm. you know closer uh so all that stuff he he's already sussed her out and kind of deconstructed her psychologically so when she gets um the jizz thrown in her face it's like the first time we see him sort of not panic but he's like like i said his whole facade drops when he's like you know agent stalin yeah. agent stalin and that's when he gives her the gives her the clue um, I don't think he gives her that clue if Miggs doesn't. I mean, we don't have a film with Miggs. 
Yeah, I, I like your uh, I like your reading on it because they, I mean there has to be a motivation for it. As we're saying, this whole thing's so economical that I'm sure they wouldn't just chuck that in there because oh, if we don't do it, there's no film. I'm sure they did uh, uh, think about it. I'm not saying this is a this is a romance story, but it's just in the subject matter that Lecter brings up mm. in his conversations with her. Always going yes, yeah, yeah. to sex, which which is act, which is which seems on the, the, the and second she meeting, calls him out on it. You know, she says in the second conversation. Yeah, second conversation. She's yeah. like, that's something that Mace it's would say. her her but, um her response to it is also very interesting, and it's, just, it's boring and it doesn't interest me. Um, and because she has so much lecherous attention paid to her by virtually every male in the film, she's either undermined or creeps on or both by pretty much every man she meets. I find it interesting. As you said, she, she seems to be a very honest character throughout. So I find that interesting that that's her response to it. It's boring and it doesn't interest me. No, I think she's being honest. I don't think that interests Yes. Her. But, I, but, I, but I think it interests him. Uh, and, and, and like I said, the reason is not just because uh, later on there's a Hannibal film where they, you know, they don't just point at it, explicitly say it. Um, yeah, it's more because of the way he keeps bringing up sex in the in their conversations. You know, he talks about fumbling yeah. the back car. He talks about did he sodomize you? Did, you know, do do you envisage um, he thinks about uh, yeah, fucking you? It's it's and again, what I like about the film is that we're able to have this conversation about it. It's not bang in your face. Nor is it so subtle that you know you could just completely miss it. So yeah, it's interesting that she comes out from the uh, the the metaphorical hellscape of the uh, of the dungeon where she meets the 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 monster and back into reality, back into the flat drab gray light of of the real world, and she immediately has uh, the first of, as far as I remember, only two flashbacks to her dead father. What do you think about the um mm, the yeah. the placement of those two? Well, I think this one's really interesting because clearly uh, the idea is that Lecter has stirred stirred this 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 memory up uh, when he deconstructed her and talked about her being a rube and the, her, trying to conceal her accent and she has a physical change from trainee to FBI agent, but she also transforms in her character she's you know from the start of the film when she's sort of struggling fumbling and by the end she's taking control yeah. she's she's a heroine by the end of it so um i like i like the placement and one thing that i also like is the i like the way that the memory the daughter the flashbacks how the flashbacks are treated as if they were memory you know they they're not full of dialogue that tells you everything about the character mm. they are like memories are they're they're fleeting and then it's filled with sort of small details but yeah not so much that it feels filmic it's a it's evocative of a it's evocative of a sensation well i find it interesting that uh the first time she has um the flashback is is after she's sort of broken broken down by Hannibal Lecter, a strong male figure of a of roughly kind of fatherly age, um, 
one who uh, has that sort of self-possession and self-confidence to to completely sort of dominate their interaction. And the second time she has one is uh, after she is kind of embarrassed by Jack Crawford in front of the sheriffs and all the sheriff's deputies. And I just, I I don't know whether that was um, an intentional placement in that because the, the absence of her father is, is such an integral part of her as a character. The fact that you have these two figures who are at least in terms of their, their age, potential father figures and in the film, maybe they are. It would be weird to call Hannibal Lecter a father figure to her. This is the, uh, if we're in the Joseph Campbell, right? We're in the, this is the, the middle bit. This is the tests, allies, enemies. This is your bulk of your story. This is just where shit happens. Just whatever. Exactly. You know, she goes to the yourself storage facility. Um, and I would love to spend like, a day rummaging through all oh, the gen- generic creepy shit uh, yeah yeah but but you know again this is this is horror uh the way it's shot the way it's built up what i really like is the character moments again you know we can see that clarice is logical but she's smart you know she says to the guy oh um the fbi know i'm yeah. here with you uh, yeah, it's just it's a, again, it's just a line, but um, it's great that she's she's got that awareness because she knows she's going into to a situation that we're all going. Yeah. Don't go in there. <laughs> Literally, just do not go in there. Uh, but yeah, she still she goes, and that's why that's why she's our heroine. Um, so it's great. It's just a, it's a wonderful little bit. We get a hair in yep. a jar, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and that that is. That is Benjamin Raspel. And again, all these details, they're sort of a little bit murky. It, I'm not sure how well it holds together if you were to scrutinize it with, you know, the finest comb. But it works for the for the narrative that's being told in this film. So he was a former patient of Lecter. And I love the way um, that Lecter <laughs> just kind of, when the second encounter he just sort of says, uh, yeah, his, this yeah. is going nowhere. This <laughs> was just a garden variety, <laughs> manic depressive, terribly boring. Oh, it's, it's, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. But what I also like about the second encounter is the rules that she was given. You know, she'd already broken a couple of them by opening up to Lecture in the first encounter. But by the second encounter, she's just completely just She's sitting right next that, to his um, uh, cell. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to get into patriarchy, but you can look at it this way and say, yeah, she's just going to dismiss what Crawford and Chilton have said to her, and she's going to yep. go on her own instincts and go on what she thinks is right and what she thinks is going to be able to, you know, garner the right result. So she takes the towel off Lecter. She sat right up close to the to the yeah. specs glass, and but again, the staging. She sat. He stood. Um, yeah, this the second encounter, but things are developing. You know, their relationship is growing. That that towel, you know, again, it's another hint that he's developing feelings for yeah. Clarice. Uh, they discuss the nature of Buffalo Bill. Uh, he talks about change, hmm. transformation, and he d- in and this is where yeah, just get, let's get it over it with because the next scene we're going to be in, next scene we're going to be introduced to to yeah. our, our Billy boy. Um, 
Clarice says her first assessment is, oh, he's you know, is he a transvestite? And I think it's in the second encounter that they they talk about, you know, no, 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 no. Transvestites, that goes against type. Transvestites are normally passive, not violent. They go into it again, I think, mm. in the next meeting. But okay. let's get into the controversy. This film was pick this film was picketed at the Academy Awards. Uh, I don't think it was just Silence of the Lambs, though. That same year was JFK. Kevin Bacon is playing stereotypical homosexual, mm-hmm. sleeps with everybody, totally flagrant. Um, you've got Basic Instinct. I haven't seen that film in years, but um, yeah, lesbian lesbian killers yeah. who hate men. Um, so I can I I get it. I think I understand the reasons why the LBGT community would yeah. take offense. Um, hard for me to fully understand it because I'm not homosexual and I'm not a transvestite, but I can understand it from where I'm, you know, mm. where I'm coming from. I can understand why watching this film, blinking, you miss it, certain lines of dialogue, you would feel uh, offended at the portrayal of your only homosexual and transsexual character is yeah. a monster, um, Buffalo Bill. It's implied, though. He they, they yeah. do say he is. Well, it's it's but... yeah. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna call that one as as a bit of a hand wave. That's uh, I think the problem that that you've got is that you should be allowed to portray whichever characters you want in whichever scenarios you want. And if the world was equal and if everyone uh, if everyone had their opportunities to be portrayed in whatever way they felt, then it wouldn't be such an issue. But when it comes to issues of representation, this film is uh, definitely in a lineage with uh, Psycho. Psycho would probably be the film that kind of kicked off a lot of... It was, I mean, it was a, a massive indelible influence on a lot of films. This one especially. This is also coming a few years after uh, Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill, which we mentioned before when we were talking about Scarface. Yes, we did. We did. And there was controversy around yeah. that one. And, um, again, and right, what so. you have is um, is that your only, most people's only uh, um, exposure to to trans rights, be it uh, uh, I mean, transvestism and transgender are, are kind of two very separate things and um hollywood didn't really see it like that and i mean what a couple of years after that you've even got like throwaway stupid comedies like ace ventura getting laughs from the idea of a transgender murderer mm. um so what what you have is uh yep. no matter that you've put one line of dialogue in to say but of course we're not doing this but what you what you're doing for the entire of the rest of your film is you're getting your vicarious kicks and you're othering your villain and you're othering your villain you do that to isolate the audience from that from that villain you want the audience to be repulsed and weirded out and freaked out and you other them by giving them gendered dysmorphia or gender issues um 
And yeah, that's mm-hmm. uh, I can totally see why somebody would not be able to look beyond that and and you know and and look at the film as a as a technical exercise or whatever because it's i understand how how hurtful that that can be because i mean if if you look at especially in america right now how strangely het up people are about transgender people a lot of times these prejudices these prejudices are are, are there because people's brains make patterns and they make patterns based on information that they've already had and films and especially films like this which if we're going to call it a horror film or even if we're not it's still within that kind of realm you're playing on people's base fears in some cases implanting base fears and how many people of our age are scared of clowns just because they watched tim curry in it or how many people are scared of dogs because they saw cujo i don't know I'm, i'm not saying that it's uh that i'm definitely right about this I, I have no idea. Everyone brings their own biases and their own uh, interpretations and their own experiences to bear on anything. Films aren't, aren't made in a vacuum. But if if we did want to come out with, or if I did want to come out with a criticism of the film, I would say that that's that's uh, the treatment of Buffalo Bill is, is, is definitely a strong one. You're absolutely right that they are preying upon the strange, the weird, the... Mm. You know, the unusual um and 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 that is no more no more evident than the uh, goodbye horses scene which um weirdly uh my friend <laughs> taff guess what he's welsh uh he he absolutely adores that song i can't listen to that song without thinking about that scene so you're absolutely right um these things are kind of they're implanted your first experiences with whatever and if you elicit the it's fear and revulsion yeah of fright fear whatever it is no it's going to take a lot to kick that out it's going to go away i mean how many well-meaning tiny micro budget dramas are people not going to watch i mean nobody's going to watch that this is a huge big you know it's um it's pop culture and Pop culture forms the backdrop of our lives, and retroactive criticism on these things is just—it's—it's it's always good to look back on things that you loved, and it's the entire point of what we do here. You know, we—we we look back on things that we loved, and we start to see things differently because we're different people. You'd hope you are. Censorship and and removing stuff because it's no longer uh, culturally uh, accepted. No, 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 no. Uh, I, uh, these things are—you know—they're time yeah. capsules. Um, and we should be looking at looking at them and, and and rightfully pointing out the flaws and learning from them. I mean, isn't that what mm. mistakes? Are what really I would about? say is that it's evident that, uh, that Jonathan Demme clearly felt that way because you know what's his next major project? Philadelphia. So um, he clearly felt like he had some um, yeah, some unfinished work and and some and to right some wrongs. So you know, good on him for. For, for doing that because I, certainly one thing I will say is that it was never his intention I don't think but we're now going to get into yeah. Tom Petty and I bloody ruddy <laughs> love Tom Petty and unfortunately okay. uh, my girlfriend uh, will not allow me to listen to yeah. Tom Petty's American Girl because it reminds her of this scene and also I mean mo- moving beyond um, the, the the points that we've already hopefully not massively belaboured in terms of creating 
uh, a simultaneously fascinating and repulsive screen presence. I mean, this is. Oh, I. Yeah, he's he is. Yeah. Even now, watching it, it's creepy, really creepy. Yeah. His daring as an actor should be admired. You know, we talked before about close-ups and how difficult that must be. How difficult must it be to just bear all for for everyone to see yeah. in this film? Um, yeah, massive credit to him as far as just creating this this monster. Uh, the the writer um, Thomas and ha- Thomas Harris, the original writer of the book, um, I think he points to sort of three of three real life serial killers. So mm-hmm. Ed Gain with the sewing of the the woman's suit. Ted, Ted, Bundy, uh, Ted yeah. Bundy for for this scene. Oh, this is uh, like feigning, you know, feigning an injury or something. Yeah, yeah feigning an injury. Yeah, and oh, I can't remember who the other one was. I think it was like Mechic or something like that. But the other one had um, used to keep keep his victims in a in a in a dug dug up hole, which is you know, similar to the right. the well uh, in 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 Buffalo Bills very own dungeon in the basement so yeah uh, uh, an amalgamation of, of mm. different serial killers which is why he's such an effective monster because he's just everything yeah. about him is is horrible but what i really like as well about the um the buffalo bill character uh aside from the 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 mixed uh, messages about the transgender transsexual stuff and the, the homosexuality is the the fact that he's like the complete antithesis of lecter you know, Lecter is this charming, uh, well-spoken, polite mm. on the surface. Uh, th- we don't really see Buffalo Bill too much, but the uh, at the end scene when he's talking with Clarice, he's he's, he's almost not. Um, he's almost like got kind of yeah. an antisocial. He's not able to to be able to kind of communicate with her on a human level. You know, when she asks about the the owner, and he's like, "Is that a?" A really yeah. big fat lady. Yeah, it's the stuff that you wouldn't say to an FBI agent who was at your door. And he's he's completely, yeah, he's he's completely devoid of humanity. Um, unlike Lecter, and that's how Lecter sucks us in. But but he is built to be repulsive. Uh, but Levine sells it, and uh, yeah, he's we, but it's odd though because um, uh, while Lecter can can communicate with people because he's very erudite and he's very well learned and he's very well read, whereas um. Uh, clearly, Bill is not. Bill portrays uh, emotion later on when he's looking down into the well. He break he he breaks. Yeah, but it's almost cruel to start with. He cruel, he breaks down when he's when he's trying to dehumanize her and talk and it. Yeah, yeah. And he refers to her as but it, he's yeah. you know he's yeah. he he's he's breaking. But then of course he he then turns that into just like that horrible mocking squeal it's uh right you reminded me of the original texas chainsaw massacre you know the dinner scene yeah uh where everyone's sort of screaming and and that was the blurred lines between horror and comedy um because it's horrific but take it you know take the context away and that is played for laughs essentially um Mm. but yeah when he does it and above the well ooh. Yeah, but we we have a we have a, a our next victim, and uh, we have I think uh, I think I heard you mention this um, 
We have a ticking clock now. It is the ticking clock. I mentioned it in the plot summary, and we're 30 minutes in, so we're going to transition yeah. from Act 1 to Act 2. It's not. I don't think it's the first time it happens. It's certainly not the last, but it's the first really prominent time that I can think of where um, we as the audience are ahead of a character whereby something horrible is going to happen to them. As soon as we see her, like as soon as we see her in the car and as soon as we see her singing along to Tom Petty, it's immediately after, like this one, no, no wasted scene transitions. Hannibal Lecter says he's out there right now looking for that next special girl. And then bam, there you go. There's your American girl. It's, uh, it's, it's not, I don't want to say it's unsubtle, but it's, it's, you know, it's given the audience exactly what they need to know. Next. Yeah, well, there's no, there's no, there's no time to waste. There's nothing. Yeah. There's no. And they, they, they don't drag that scene out, but they make it long enough. They stretch that moment just enough so that it's, it's the creeping dread. But it's like you know for a fact that she's the next victim. The night vision goggles. They come back later. So again, it's all mm-hmm. set up and set up and payoff. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. pretty brutal the way that he takes her down as as well. And um, and what's the the horror? You, I almost said it then. You've almost convinced me that this is actually a horror film. The, well, um, who knows, the, man? The horror. It the can horror be if you want element, it to be. Yeah, the horrific element is that this feels so not normal because I don't think people move their sofas in the middle of the night anymore. But it's the idea that this could happen to yeah. you, and uh, and the way that Demi shoots it. That's what we're. That's what he's he's driving at. It's great stuff, you know. The cat yeah. the window, and she was so close. Wonderful stuff. So we move on. You're right. Crawford and Stalin are going to West Virginia, and this is probably yep. like up until um, up until the final encounter between Lecter and Clarice. This is probably like our last big set piece. And I want to draw your attention. I said before the film is not very cinematic. There ain't much action. So the fact yeah. that this film is so gripping, so tense, you know, my last shout out to the filmmakers in all departments, you know, art direction, sound, editing, you know, the editing is great stuff. The, yeah. the beginning of the film, the edits are so quick. We're like, we need to get to this bit. And then we're going to have our conversation with Lecter and Clarice, the main heart of the film. And we're going to slow it all down. We're going to slow it yeah. right down. And then we're going to bring it back up again. And it's, it's, it's like music. It's so rhythmic. It's great stuff. And like I said, we talked about the uh, the camera work, the lighting, mm-hmm. the choices the actors are making. This autopsy scene is where I'm going to take a little bit of a a little bit of a stance against what you said right at the beginning when you stated that this film isn't terribly realistic. I am going to disagree because I think this is the this is the film that is giving you the authentic detective stuff now does it get is it done better when it's replicated in films later on yeah i think it is but for the time in 1991 i think this is pretty ahead of its time mm. and uh, and watching it again i think it still holds up um, well I, th- I think um this level of grounding is fine i think what i mean overall is that what i th- just literally just for me i think pushes it towards because like, i i I had I had heard you know uh, somebody trying to argue whether this was or wasn't horror, and there was a guy saying that it wasn't. And he said it wasn't because it's about 
just a guy, just a guy who's a killer. But I feel like these elements. Good argument. I know. And I was like, well, you know, and they were thinking like, oh, well, Michael Myers can't be killed. So well, actually the first Halloween film he he is, I mean, he doesn't even have the name. He's not called Michael Myers. He's just a a, a guy in a mask. So um, I I feel like people are, are placing kind of these very narrow limitations based on not very much, but um, I feel like they elevate the character of just Hannibal to something almost pushing into the supernatural. The things he can do and the things the 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 way they they talk about him and the way they they push his legend. And when you hear that guy in the elevator say, "I hear he's some kind of vampire," I think, like, oh, the film doesn't refute that. The film leans yeah. into it hard. So. Um, Scenes like this, you know, when the in the autopsy and when you when you interact with people on the ground, and yeah, it does it grounds it, and it you need that grounding because when you push beyond that and you go into the grandiose and you go into the kind of the stranger elements later on, the the idea that apparently Hannibal can single handedly hoist a man up, uh, put him Jesus Christ like pose on the outside of a cage with his guts falling out. Like, sorry, as I said, you have to have grounded it to go there. You have to start down here so you can go up there. You know, this is why maybe one day we'll actually script what we talk about. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've eaten my sandwiches, Devin. Have I? Um, no, you're, abso- you're absolutely right. No, you're absolutely right. You need these scenes, just like you needed the scenes in the uh, Quantico FBI training, um, in order to have that leap of faith into buying the extravagant, buying the fantastical, you know, Crawford's office, Hannibal Lecter's office. We're talking about two completely different worlds. Yeah. And it's the same. It's the same with this scene compared to the, the grandiose escape scene, which you're absolutely right. And, and actually, um, you know, the, the fact that Lecter has been talked up so much is the reason why by the end we, well, I say we, I certainly buy, even though I know that it's completely contrived and no way has he got the time <laughs> to start setting up little um, little butterfly imagery um, <laughs> on the top of his, uh, you know, symbolic cage. Uh, yeah, he doesn't have that time, but I buy it. I salute you, sir, <laughs> Mr. Demi. You've done well. What I really like is Clarice's empathy for the victims. Yeah. So we see Crawford and we see the photographer, um, this the other special agent, and they're um, you know they're they're very cold to what they're doing. It's a job. Um, they're not laissez-faire about it, but they're professional and they don't really emote. Clarice does. You know, she struggles through when she's examining the body, and. That again, we're learning more about her character, and these are the things that I like about about her is that she is able to project herself into the victims and feel the loss, feel the sorrow. You know, when she asked the state's policeman to to get out, not only are we seeing her take yeah. control um, in one of the you know the first time she starts to to really take charge, but also it's 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 done for the right reasons. It's done for the empathetic reasons. And this is, at the end of the day, another human being and not something to be gawked at. And it's, it's like I say, it's really grim. But I'll move yeah. on from this scene, Devlin, to yeah. one little 
and it's with the final time we're going to talk about uh, the the woman in a man's world because I think we've we've kind mm-hmm. of gone there enough. But I really like the way she deals with the microaggression. That yes, he, I, he didn't mean it, but he did it, and she calls him out on it. And again, it's another reason why I really really like her. And he kind of he, he kind of owns it as well. Point taken. Well, I was thinking there's some really wonderful um, uh, body language and and m- more than that framing. Oh, like but when they're driving to the the autopsy um, after the helicopter, um, he's in the front seat and she's in the back seat like a child, and she's talking to the back of his head. He doesn't turn mm. around to speak to her, you know, until never, halfway through the that. sequence, and then when he. And then when he when he does, um, that's when he says that if I'd have told you what was going on, Lecter would have toyed with you and turned to stone. Basically, like again, he's disappointed her because he's underestimated her and he's undermined her twice. Because that's on the way to to you know the same sequence with the let's not, and that's what triggers her second um, flashback to her father. And that's why I thought it was it was strange that they're they're both located right after one of the i don't i i hesitate very very much to say paternal male <laughs> figures but older male figures disappoint her and then both times she immediately flashes back to her father mm-hmm. um this is after she's left in that room full of guys with hats looking down at her yes it's really interesting and then when she's calling him out on it jack crawford uh after post autopsy is uh, is laying back in the passenger seat, very relaxed, and she is sitting all the way forward. Her head is just on the other side of his headrest. It's a uh, it's a total change of uh, of of a, they're in a two shot. Yeah, as well. you're right. You're right. And the staging throughout the film and the power plays that are going on, and I've been pointing them out as we've been going on through our conversations with Lecter because the next one changes. Yeah. Uh, so mm. we're jumping slightly ahead. She meets the bug guys, even they hit on her. Um, but this is just to yep. understand uh, the importance of the moth. Um, but but again, we're given information, but it's more just yeah, the the importance of the moth. And then we um, you know we see Buffalo Bill in his dungeon, and I do, I will point out one thing. You know we get a, we get again the whole coveting thing. You know the camera, the steady cam takes you all the way through his 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 layer and i love the way he's just sort of hunched over uh over a seat a bit like a, a bit like a troll or a, you know just like a monster yeah um and we can hear Catherine martin screaming in the background it's all you don't need any more than that so yeah we will leave it there but we get clarice offering lecter a chance to uh to escape mm. his hell which is uh in the asylum with dr chilton and this is this is the her transformation it's not complete at this point but this is where she's gone from being uh sort of inferior to lecter to equal she's standing he's sat these little things but they they're really important and like you said the way that it's shot we know from the previous conversation that lecter does have desires you know he wants a room with a window with a view away from dr chilton and she offers it him. And this time she knows that there's an agenda because it's a fake offer, but she sells it. And I love yep. the fact that Lecter buys it. It doesn't weaken him, 
because we know that he has gotten affections for Clarice. But what it does is it strengthens her case as being a strong protagonist and heroine in this story because she's now an intellectual equal yes. to this character who has been larger than life throughout this whole film. Mm-hmm. Elevates her. She's no longer being being just used. She's not a tool of Jack Crawford. She is now, she's now ple- pushing the narrative forward. Exactly. She's taking charge. So it's uh, it's really good stuff. Um, and they play their quid. Amazing. Um, sorry. Oh, no, no. Go ahead. I was just going to say uh, during that uh, the the next sequence that the lighting on Anthony Hopkins is 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 pretty incredible. Oh, you mean the the, um, uh, the spotlight from above? Uh, are you... Yeah. So you have uh, we have two completely separate lighting setups. Whereas all he does is he turns from left. He's looking to his left. He's looking at Clarice when they're talking about the case. When he wants to ask her about something personal. He turns away to the right. He turns into his fill light, which is much, much lower. His fill light and his rim light. So uh, you you don't get any. Um, there's no mid tones. It's just it's it's dark and it's light, and you can see all the kind of weird contours of his face. And he's looking off lens uh, when he's listening to her talk about her her childhood. Mm-hmm. And then when she snaps him back to the case, he rolls back to his left and he stares at her and he's in a full light again. The technical points, but they they all are in ser- service of the character. You know, I mentioned it before. Everything is working in order to enhance this performance. It's not just yeah. the actors. It really is the filmmakers, and I include the actors in, in, in that description. So, yeah, it's, it's wonderful stuff. And they play their quid pro quo, uh, which is she accepts again, dismissing what Crawford said. She's letting Lecter in. And I love how Chilton, the scumbag, uh, <laughs> is listening in. Uh, yeah. You know, oh, he's, such a, he's such a bastard. I love it. <laughs> now, I'm gonna, now, we're going to transition Devlin, and I'm going to say yep. this. It puts the lotion on its skin or it gets the hose again. Put the fucking lotion on put the lotion in the basket. It's, uh... Oh, man, listen, we've already, we've already touched upon it, but God, he's creepy as hell, isn't he? Yeah. Well, it's, it's again, it's, it's another thing that's, it's absurd and it's become a kind of meme and it's been dredged up and but when you see it in context and you watch it in the film like it's it's not it's absurdity it's absurdity is uh is is just disturbing it's disturbing right i mean again i ought to point to south park because i think they um they joke about it when <laughs> they have playing, playing lambs yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh dear yeah that's enough though it's great um we see roger corman uh no no sorry apologies apologies uh we'll make sure that we stay on the narrative uh narrative line so chilton reveals that it's a fake offer uh again he's being a bastard and uh we he's worming himself into the spotlight now yeah he's worming his way into the spotlight absolutely he wants to take credit for all of this um you know he's a complete narcissist egotistical son of a son of a gun um, but Lecter's not interested in that. He is interested in his pen, which he's dropped on the uh, on the bed. 
And, exactly. and this is one of those narrative leaps. This is one of those film leaps that you just have to go, I accept that I didn't see how he did it, but because he's got this mythology behind him, because he's so dastardly and he's, you know, he's that character that can do it all. Um, we believe that, yeah, he just found a way of getting that pen. Yeah. And, uh, it's, I buy it again. The film's done enough. I want to, I want to say, because I got criticized uh, for <laughs> pointing out issues over predator two and being harsh. Um, I will accept leaps of faith if the film earns it. And in Predator 2, they just fumbled the ball too many times, by which by the end I just gave up. Um, in this film, they've earned, they've earned these these sort of leaps. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, I don't mind. I don't need to see how Lecter got the pens. And then we get the um, another really, really strong scene. Lecter meets the senator. And mm. even though uh, I'm going to argue that Lecter as a character doesn't transform, um, he he symbolically changes from prisoner to escaped convict and we see that sort of metamorphosis we, yeah we all he grows but, in stature throughout the film as well yeah but exactly Devin. he grows in stature and he almost and this is where he's treading a fine line he's almost getting into cartoon in this yeah. scene when he's um when he's with the with the senator but because the dialogue's so strong and his quips are so witty and you know the the nipple line just, like, just you can't help but just be charmed by the man. <laughs> Him at the end of it with the labia suit, like it could be stupid. It could just be stupid. Yeah, that... But Sean Connery toughened your nipples, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, um, it's uh, it's it's quite something for that to actually work out as good as it does. We get the final Lecter Clarice yeah. scene. So he's being held up in this, I guess it's a court, isn't it? He's in a court. I believe so, yeah. But he has like an entire image. huge room all to himself with a tiny cage inside yeah. it. But he has, again, like he's sitting, yeah, with all... sitting there. He's got his nice chair. He's got his dressing screen. Yes, it's, uh, he's, 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 made, um, he's made a deal. So he's got certain, certain privileges. Uh, and we Clarice sneaks in. They've been booted off the case at this point because the false deal was been um, has been ousted by by Chilton. One thing I would say about that scene with the senator, you know, the way that Chilton just sort of parades him. Like, yeah. And I introduce Doctor Hannibal. Oh my god, it's like King Kong, isn't it? You know. Yeah, it is. It is like King Kong. You, you bring out the prize, and then the prize destroys you all. Indeed, indeed. Um, but we get the final, uh, the final interaction between Clarice and Lecter. We've talked enough about their performances mm. and, and whatnot. All I will say is um, the last sort of compliment I'll give Jodie Foster is when she delivers the monologue. When you listen to the dialogue, or an actor not working, this would be clunky as hell. Yeah. But because I'm more focused on her face, I kind of not really listening to the dialogue too closely so when she's talking about the lambs and it's kind of this is one of the only bits of of dialogue that really feels quite ham-fisted yeah i get it you know the lambs catherine i get yep. it um but i'm not really focusing on the dialogue because i'm just watching jodie foster's face in that close yeah. up in the monologue and that must be so difficult to hold you know hold that performance when the camera is that mm. close 
and there's there's I, nothing else like they barely light the background um yeah i don't think there's any uh, well the sound is yeah, minimal it's 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 uh, just her it's her face there's nothing it's i think yeah. the the shot goes from like just barely grazing the top of her head to just below her chin uh her face is lit the background is is barely even there she's like a she's like a floating mm. head in the bohemian rhapsody video <laughs> and it's just it's just her and 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 the dialogue and the, the reverse shot on um on hopkins as well when he's you know the head tilted down and the eyes tilted up at this point it ceases to become clarice's story for a 10 minute I think it's, it's a long minutes, scene long 10 minutes this is a yeah. it's a long old scene when lector escapes um to the detriment of the film or are we happy to put clarice aside for a substantial part of what should be the ramping up coming drawn to a conclusion part of the film um mm. because i actually thought i liked it and i think the a character this big deserves this big bigger an exit and like i asked the question before why do we root for lecter well i want lecter to escape i'm not sure i would have wished a you know, the gruesome death of the officers that were in charge of him, because I don't think they did too much wrong. But um I want to I mm. want this scene. Um but I was wondering if you did as well. It's Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> Well it's so it's so it's so staged. It's staged. Well, it's so staged. It's so staged. But it's really, really well done. It's like the little touches yeah. that make this so effective. You know, orders a second dinner after he's spoken to Clarice. Oh, I think I'll just have yeah. some rare lamb after we've just and had the conversation. Um... Like you, his his sense of sense of humor is great, and also the way that he is purposely left the drawings on the table yeah. knowing the officers will have to move that to buy him more time we yeah. see the pen this you, you mentioned hitchcock this is this is if this was brian de palmer i yeah. wouldn't be surprised this is hitchcock it's it's the, it's the same as um it's the same as as when you know that Catherine's gonna gonna be kidnapped you just you're waiting you're waiting for these characters to keep up yes and you know something terrible is gonna happen so he stretches it he pulls that moment out, mm-hmm. not too much. It's just enough, and then it absolutely kicks off. And I think you <laughs> needed to see it because we've had Lecter as a as a mythical creature. Almost, he's he's a he's a he's he's described as as being you know he's he's supernatural as we said. Is it's. It's not just some dude who kills people and eats them. Like, I mean, we had one of those in Darlington in the late nineties. Then we made a film about that. Um, no, this is a Channel Five documentary, though. Uh, but no, like this is uh, this is. You, I think you need this. I think you need this release. You've had so much tension up until this point, and um, I think it's. Uh, it's fortunate that it doesn't imbalance the film as much as it possibly could, because this could be, yeah, this uh, could be a kind of, you know, the false climax whereby everything else from this point on is downhill. But I think they spin these plates so well, they have done all the way through. And I think they spin these plates just enough that you've seen enough of Bill and 
the performance that Ted Levine has put in has been so strong that you're still following it. You're still with it. Even after this, which is honestly yeah. like a standalone set piece. Even if Lecter had escaped, but in a kind of more functional, less dramatic, less theatrical manner, it just wouldn't be as satisfying. And we talked before about the relationship between horror and comedy. There are loads of little comedic drops. I mean, when the when he moves the drawings, there's a magazine that says Bon Appetit. Bon Appetit. <laughs> You know, these are, that's not just been left there because someone was reading that magazine, which, by the way, monthly subscription is five ninety nine. But if you get the first issue, it's two ninety nine. Oh, that's how they get you. That's how they get you. That's how they got me on that bloody T Rex glows in the dark after Jurassic Park. Yep, still got, got it about, in my attic. Well, I got about four ribs in, and then I was like, <laughs> I think I'm being fleeced. Uh, yep, uh, sixty issues. <laughs> that's mental. <laughs> but yeah. We so we have these little comedic flourishes, um, but yeah, the violence. This is probably again one of the. This is gratuitous, but it isn't really. You just see. I think it's more horrific that you see it from Lecter's. You know, mm. you see Lecter's eyes. It's almost like being killed by a cat. Yeah. yeah. If you saw if you were being mauled by a lion. You'd see the eyes last and. Oh, this is this is really good stuff. And there's, uh, there's the bite, and then there's the. Um the the mace and then there's the truncheon coming down but the truncheon coming down is is and the thing we're in the position of being pummeled <laughs> he's standing over us and it's our viscera that's splattering his white trousers and it when lecter escapes he he did give clarice one last clue uh you know he passed the um the case files makes a point of that. He, we didn't mention it in that last conversation, but he does brush her finger. Yep. Yeah. There's loads of ways you can interpretate that, but I think I've, I've given my position. I think it's a, you know, he's, I think he's attracted to Clarice. Yep. I think he's fascinated by her, he's intrigued by her, and I think that was his way of kind of solidifying that relationship with a with a touch. Mm. Uh, but he gives her one last clue puts the puts the puzzle together you know he talks about simplicity uh you know what does he do he covets and um, and so they draw a conclusion from his note which is doesn't this scattering seem desperately random she remembers the first victim was actually the only one that was uh that buffalo bill had taken the care to um weigh down in a river so she goes to Belvedere, like I mentioned before, in the opening scene with, yeah. with Lecter. He talks about the Belvedere. Um, so she goes off, and this is where she's scanning uh, the victim's house. You know, we see bu- butterfly wallpaper. It's all kind of yeah. It's all implied. Also, that um, I guess uh, that she it seemed that they were similar characters, and that they both wanted to kind of. Everyone's like you said. Everyone seems to want to transform. I don't know whether whether the idea of uh, there being so many birds in her house and there's a photograph of her releasing a bird. You know, this idea mm. of like birds represent freedom. That maybe she wants to. Yeah, I mean, you can draw that conclusion. Um, you, there's so many things you can you can draw from just the semiotics in the scene. You know, the, yeah. the what's being dressed in the in the set. You know, there's a I mean, there's a poster for example that says "Dumb Blondes." I mean, you could just I saw them. that. Yeah, and it's yeah, quite, yeah. It's quite prominent. Or it's you, you don't put it, that in there by accident. But then again, you you might yeah. do because it's supposed to be a young woman's bedroom. I, I don't yeah. know another example of her 
being able to project herself as a woman. The thing that the you know separates her from the men is she's able to she's able to find the the photographs within the ma- within the music box. Yeah, because you know it's all implied. It's not told. It's told visually. You know, she's able to say. If I were to hide something, maybe I'd hide it here. And she just, mm. you know, so we don't need to. Again, she's smart. She's logical. She's drawing on her her own experience again. But the next mm. scene, Devlin. Goodbye, horses. Oh, it's creepy. Yeah. Oh, it's creepy. Playing with his with his weird nipples. <laughs> I don't want to make light of it, but have you ever have you ever tucked tucked? <laughs> <laughs> Not on video. No, not on video. Yeah, I bet there's loads of webcams where people have done it. Though. While that's all happening, and 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 Catherine is there, kind of snatching the uh, snatching precious down into the into the cave with a stray chicken bone. Mm-hmm. Um, we lead into a scene which, even though it should have been super super obvious, what we were getting ourselves into when you have the SWAT team heading across to, to one location and Clarice showing up at another, it should have been, and you know what? It still got me when he opened that door and it was he, yeah. Clarice outside. Yep. Still got me. Wow. No, you know, it's you no, know, we like being tricked though. I like being tricked in films. The cross cutting, the rhythm of that cross cutting, the, 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 you know, the guy pressing the doorbell and that, that, big alarm bell going off in the basement and it's all kind of yeah is it was fantastic it's almost universal monsters at that point yep. isn't it with the um the dutch tell yeah 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 fantastic stuff it, it is um i i personally again i guess this is because i've seen it so many times so i can't even i can i can only you know i feel like uh, the woman in titanic it's only in my memory, <laughs> but I, I can only draw on sort of thoughts and feelings uh, about the film. I can't really like, vividly remember what did I feel? Was I tricked? I'm sure I was when I first saw the film. The one thing that does ring a little bit false is um, Crawford's dun 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 um, sort of crash zoom. Clarice, um, I don't really know how he would put two and two together and think that she's no. going to the house where the killer is. That's kind of done for for us, um, but it kind of yeah that that really stands out as a kind of a false beat. Um, but it's minor. It's yeah, it's a moment in a in a film yeah. full of moments which are great. So I think when you when, yeah, and when you talk about momentum, like the film's built up such a head of steam at this point that you're not you're not looking unless you unless you're going through these films looking for inconsistencies. I don't think that's one that's going to come up naturally. It certainly didn't for me. Uh, he kind of what takes over the house or yeah well that's that's one of the clues that she knows that uh that crawford told her over the radio that um there was a a package delivered intercepted two years ago and he tells her Mm -hmm. i took over this house two years ago and she just puts it all together and um what i like about the the kind of the the hunt she's scanning the she's scanning the the rooms she's checking the corners which she you know made a made a made a fatal error in training um but she's also shutting those doors and closing them making sure well she knows now he's not in mm-hmm. that room 
So he must be here. And I like that. I just like, but she does it in a way. Her physicality is kind of clumsy. She's not yeah. doing it like Jack Bauer or like, um, you know, Arnold would do is it. it. It's more Danny. Is it more Danny Glover? It's a little bit more Danny Glover. Um, <laughs> she's not wearing as baggy a uh, baggy. A Could anyone? Uh, but she's really? probably, <laughs> no. But she's a sweat. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so she's sort of um, systematically going through the mm. maze. And what I, I didn't mention, we haven't really mentioned Catherine. But what I like about her is, you know, we don't really get much time with her. Uh, but she's she's a fighter she's too. Not, she's, she's not, not she's the, not like some damsel yeah. in distress. She's she's not like the princess in the tower. She's she's trying to actively. Yeah. She's got plans. She's bargaining. She steals a she drags love, the dog down and threatens to kill him. I know. And then her arc is that she's found a found a friend, I guess, when she walks away yeah. with the dog at the end. But what I do like is the way she's like, don't you leave me, you fucking yeah, bitch. Man. For me, that totally rings true because that's what yeah. I'd be like. I'd be like, what are you doing? Get me out of yeah. this hole. Really good creative choices by the actor and the filmmakers to and the script writing to mm. just put those little little bits in that give yeah. you that you know real sense that this is change it this up is, this is yeah. really happening this could happen yeah totally we the night vision comes back and we have the mano o womano um but before that we get the the gaze the, the final bit of male mm-hmm. gaze i mean your interpretation of him sort of reaching out and he sort of does he sort of touch your head yeah well, he almost kind of grazes you, could, you can take it so many He's, ways uh yeah it's like a, a peeping tom you know, the uh, Michael Powell movie from the 60s mm-hmm. where, um, mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of the archetypal male gaze thing where it's, uh, you know, a, a murderer with a cine camera filming his murders. And every time mm-hmm. we see one of those murders, it's it's from our perspective. So I'm sure this would be a film that Jonathan Demi would be would be super familiar with. And the uh, it's it's another interesting. It's, it's like it's, it's admiration as well, yeah. isn't it? He's, he's like he's almost um, you know, because we've seen him. He can't identify. You know, he wants to become, or he wants to. He's trying to make this woman suit. Whatever he's trying to become, whatever he's trying to transform yeah. into. And I think Lecter mentions it before. You know, Billy has tried to be a lot of things. You know, we see like Nazi yeah. paraphernalia and stuff like that. So he's clearly tried to be many, many things. But he he can't. He doesn't identify with women. He refers to Catherine as it. And I I, I always took it as as a final male gaze, but also a sort of, oh, I, w- I would love to be that. And he's almost admiring her from a distance. Yeah. I'd, and also I, I, do you think he's, um he's also in enjoying uh, regaining his power because I guess by her finding him, she, uh, he's, um he's lost a lot of power. So by, by cutting the lights, and reasserting his dominance over her and being able to walk around and get so close to her. I just, I I don't know whether it's, it's yet another, yet another character trying to assert dominance over her, which she's had to come up against so often. He could just, he could have shot her. Yeah. Couldn't he? He could have done as she came in, but she's in the dark. She's, she's fumbling. The panic in her eyes is, it's there. It's visceral. It's oh, like cliches, you know, who gets the shot off first? Is it Han or is it, <laughs> it's is Greedo? It Greedo? Yeah, but, um, but no, she, 
know, she. Yeah. I think she hears his claim. She hears the, she hears the, uh, the, the hammer. Listen, at the end of the day, she's she's a trainee in the FBI, so it's totally mm-hmm. believable that she's gonna she's gonna be able to pull the gun and fire before him. She slays she slays the monster, and yep. I, what I really like is the way that he is. You know, he's got the goggles on, and his hands are kind of creepily. Yeah. It's an it's an ugly it's an ugly death, isn't it? Yep, he is. He didn't transform. He's still in the cocoon of a bug. She's come through the ordeal, and now she's uh, she's she's through the other side. She's rescued the rescued the metaphorical princess. She gets her rewards. You know, she gets recognition by her peers. She gets a massive cake. Uh, but then she gets the final phone call, and this is another one of those ah. Uh, it's it's contrived. I don't think it could happen, but God damn it, I love it. I want Lecter and yep. Clarice to have that final, final. Because she she has her acceptance, her normality. She has her friends. You know, she's she's uh, she's in a room full of um, well-adjusted people, and then she gets pulled away, and she ends up skulking behind a wall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. looking on at these people you know being able to revel in their in their success and she's there because she's now changed she has seen something that those others haven't she has looked over into a darkness they have not and i i just yeah it's really interesting and you get your um hannibal gets his uh gets his last line in and he gets his he delivers his you know famous last line of Having an, mm-hmm. an old friend for dinner, which again could be so caricature and cartoonish, but we're in love with Hannibal Lecter at this point, so he can deliver that line with as much ham and cheese as he wants because <laughs> it's a study in yeah, ham and cheese, a, some would say. Um, and and then he gets to walk off into the sunset, and that is yeah. the end of Science of the Lambs. Well, it, it falls to me then to ask you, Gally. Um, did you waste your precious, precious youth on the Silence of the Lambs? It'll come as no surprise, Devlin, a bit like Predator 2, which side I'm going to fall uh, with this one. Uh, no, I absolutely did not. Um, you know what? It was, a, it was a pleasure to go back and have a film that I held in such high regard uh, throughout my sort of teens and early 20s. And then go back and watch it and go into a deep, deep analysis to conclude that, yes, this film still holds up. It's so influential. A a creative debt is owed from a lot of pieces of work that have come after it. Some have done it um, certain scenes better and certain, certain traits better. But this is the masterpiece. Uh, it's 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 a wonderful film. Uh, I would implore any anybody who has not seen it to watch it this weekend or whenever you can. And for those that have that have not seen it in a long, long time, you know, go back and revisit it. Uh, there's plenty there to get. So yeah, I think we've we've talked enough about the film. Uh, I'll leave it there. But I did not waste my time. This is very much one that deserves reviewing. Brilliant. And uh, as a well, as a as as somebody who who did not spend my youth watching it, uh, I can only give you the perspective of sh- should you go out and watch it right now, 
And my answer is uh, yes. Um, much like I did with with Scarface, this is. Uh, but I would say that my recommendation is even stronger than that one, which is that this is a film that holds up. It's uh, as we discussed. It's got some uh, legitimately problematic uh, viewpoints, mm-hmm. but I don't think, for me at least. I don't think that's a reason to not watch it. I think that's part and parcel of what makes it interesting, what makes it worth seeing. But as a as a cohesive piece of filmmaking, it's uh, it's it's masterful. Yeah, from top to bottom, from screenplay on upwards. So, Devlin, it's that time in the show when we reveal the next episode. So, please, I'm bursting in anticipation because I've drank. A lot of Chianti. <laughs> what is the next episode of the Throwback series for the Rewire Movie Podcast? I am reluctant and excited in equal measure to uh, say that uh, as we are hurtling towards autumn, and that is my favorite time of year because it is almost Halloween, seeing as how what we are doing here is that we are going through a personal journey of how we ended up liking the films that we like, how we ended up getting into cinema. Uh, I would be remiss if at this point I didn't pick a film which I'm actually not expecting you to have seen. But it's pretty fascinating. Um... I am going to say that next time out, we are going to watch Lamberto Bava, his 1985 pan-European horror opus, Demons. Okay. Interesting, Devlin. Now, this is an Italian film, a mid-80s Italian horror film, set and shot in East Berlin, pre the wall falling down didn't fall down people had to pull it down uh written co-written by dario argento okay i like it something i've heard of <laughs> now i'm gonna tell you the full story next time out please do i'm interested but honestly this one is uh more so than anything else we've covered this is a hugely hugely formative film for me well, this is what we do, bud. So let's let's do it. We're gonna be watching some. It's 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 weird, Gally. I'm gonna put I'm gonna put you through a weird film. On the plus side, it's very short. And if on the very very weird, very rare off chance any of our listeners are playing along and would like to watch it before we've before we record our next episode, yes, I'm talking about Lamberto Bava's Demons from 1985. Fantastic. It's time to say our goodbyes. So I'll say thanks for listening. We will catch you again on the next episode of the Rewind Movie Podcast. It's Gally in Glasgow signing out. And Devlin in London signing out. Thank you very much for being with us. And thank you, Gally, for having a, a, a lovely chat. We'll do our next quid pro quo in two weeks' time. Catch you later. Okay. Put the lotion in the basket. Hi, everyone. I've got a quick favour to ask. If you enjoyed the podcast, could you rate and review the episode on whatever platform you're listening to it on? For more information about the podcast, check out rewindmoviecast.com. Also, 
Find us on Twitter and Instagram and let us know your thoughts about each episode. Once again, thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast.